Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We have always been, in the United States, what Lionel Trilling calls a business civilization. But we have also had a range of counterbalancing institutions, countercultural institutions, to advance a different set of values. The churches, the arts, the democratic tradition itself. When the pendulum has swung too far in one direction, and it's always the same direction, and new institutions or movements have emerged, or old ones have renewed their mission. Education in general, and higher education in particular, has always been one of those institutions. But now the market has become so powerful that it's swallowing the very things that are supposed to keep it in check. Artists are becoming creatives. Journalism has become the media. Government is bought and paid for. The prosperity gospel has arisen as one of the most prominent movements in American Christianity. And colleges and universities are acting like businesses. I'd like to share a revelation that I had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species and I realized that you are not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move into an area, and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed, and the only way you can survive is, is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows that same pattern. Do you know what it is? And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Hi there, I'm Douglas Bowles, and I want to talk to you about ducks. Do your ducks seem old-fashioned, out of date? Central Service's new duck designs are now available in, the, in hundreds of different colors to suit your individual tastes. Happy Solstice and Merry Christmas. It's Monday, December 21st, 2015, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at, at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today, by asking what college is for, we will inevitably ask what is life for, what society is for, and what people are for. It seems suitable, too, that we will have this discussion at our most conflicted time of the year. But we will have help negotiating the space between giving and receiving, selfish and selfless, with today's esteemed guest, author and educator, William Dorizowitz. Dorizowitz is an award-winning essayist and critic, a frequent college speaker, and the best-selling author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. He taught English at Yale for 10 years and at Columbia for five, and is a contributing writer 
for The Nation and a contributing editor to The American Scholar. His work has also appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, Harper's, and The New Republic. His essay, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, has been viewed over one million times. It's an honor to be hosting him here today. How are you doing today, William? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for being here. I suppose we should start by acknowledging that at this time of year, you know, on a, on the desert world of Tatooine, a savior was born. So maybe we should start with myth, the kind of stories that inform us. What do you, with your insights into the machinery of the global economy, make of a franchise like Star Wars, which is seemingly becoming religion? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I... Um... I'm old enough to have been a teenage, a preteen maybe, or a young teen, when the first one came out, and it was this completely new experience, and and people were pointing out that it had harnessed these, in a, you know, in a very commercial and superficial way, it had harnessed these very powerful mythological elements, um, Including, I mean, maybe, I mean, I had, to be honest, I've seen the first three and I haven't seen any of the others and I don't intend to see any of the others. So I'm not sure where the mythology is these days, but it seems like the governing, uh, obviously the central idea, and it's in the title of the new, of the new one, is the force, right? It's this kind of pantheistic uh, spirituality. It's also in, um, it, based, it was in Avatar in a different form, and I think it's in a lot of the, kind of neo-mythology that, um, that Hollywood puts out. Um, it, it, it's sort of interesting. I mean, uh, you know, people want to believe people. I mean, obviously people want to believe, but it seems like these days, if people are not part of a traditional religion, and sometimes I think even if they are, maybe without realizing it, what they've come to believe in is the force. It's some kind of, Spirit that infuses the universe that um, that uh, connects us all together and provides some extremely vague sense that um, we are put here by some kind of intentionality and that we're here for some kind of reason. Um, but it's a it's a pretty depoliticized kind of spirituality. Well, I mean, I think it, it doesn't have. It can be. It can be. Uh, well, let me let me change gears and say, I don't believe any of that stuff. And to me, uh, if we don't create our own meanings and we don't create our own justice, then nothing is going to do it for us. And myths are not necessarily pernicious, but they can make us stop doing that work instead of start doing that work. Well, they can also become subverted, which is interesting in the idea of... Like the prosperity gospel, which seems in direct contradiction with the, what Jesus' radical message actually was, where he opposed the idea of empire. Right. Right. Well, look, this, I think this may shift this a little bit from talking about myths. Um, but to connect it to the subject of my book and of much of my thoughts, which is higher education, um, I, I think what happened to Jesus' message is what tends to happen, which is not even the prosperity gospel per se, that it's been subverted to, you know, the exact opposite meaning, but simply that it gets institutionalized. You know, I think there's a constant tension between 
spirit and structure, between uh, the intentions behind which something gets created, whether it's a church, a religion, or a university, and then that creation itself, that institutional structure that inevitably gets cut up with all kinds of petty human interests and petty human concerns, and it begins to acquire a momentum of its own and inertia of its own, and all of a sudden the church is serving the church and it's not serving the message or the gospel or the, the flock, and the university is serving the university, the people who work there, not the mission or the students. And I think that that's one way of understanding what's going wrong with higher education in America today. I went through this period of time where I was really trying to understand the ills of the world as I perceive them. And then it seemed like there were different different um, avenues to explore as far as like politically or economically or environmentally, but then it all... It, I think I arrived at the at the idea that it all kind of served, came from the same uh, source. That perhaps it's the very system that's creating, you know, all the ills of the world. Could you maybe explain what neoliberalism is? Yeah, and let me say that I'm I'm actually wary of explanations that reduce everything to a single source or a single impulse or a single evil actor. I think. I think the world's an extremely complicated place. I don't think, I, th I don't think, I, I think we should be careful before we go too far in that direction. But I do think it's true. You're referring, I think you may be referring to an essay that I published in Harper's in the September issue that they, they gave it a good title. It's called The Neoliberal Arts because, uh, you know, it's obviously a play on the liberal arts. And my argument is that I, I wrote this book, Excellent Sheep, that you mentioned in your introduction. It came out about a year ago, and it, it was the result of many years teaching uh, and thinking about um, Ivy League and other elite higher education and the students that I saw go through it and so forth. And I really focused on that. And, I, and without um, repudiating what I said in the book, I would say that what I've learned since the book came out in about the last year and a half, from the response I got, from things that people came and told me, is that the most important critiques that I made against our elite colleges and universities and the kind of education they offer is not specific to elite higher education in America. And it's not specific to higher education in America. And it's not specific to America. It's something that, broadly speaking, is happening to education at all levels around the world. And what that thing is, is education being reshaped according to the not logic of neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is not a particularly difficult thing to understand. Uh, people talk about it routinely now, and it basically means what we used to call Reaganism, or in Britain they call it Thatcherism. And it's the idea that uh, everything is valuable insofar as it operates in the capitalist market. Basically, you as a human being are how much you can earn, how productive you can be for an employer, how much money you can accumulate, how much money you can spend. And likewise, anything is valuable, whether it's a work of art or an education, in terms of how much uh, wealth it can ultimately produce. 
So now when people talk about education, and they do this very openly, I mean, most obviously governors, uh, Republican governors, but many people do this. They talk about education exclusively in terms of preparing workers for the workforce. You know, the old cliche is that we're being trained to be consumers. And I still think that that's true, but there's something much more insidious, which is that we're being trained to be producers. And we're being trained to think of ourselves exclusively in terms of our work and our ability to appeal to an employer. And this is how education is being reshaped. So this is neoliberal education. And everything else, every other purpose that education might serve and that his- historically it has served, uh, not just for many centuries in many countries, but in this country, you know, uh, like citizenship, like living, um, living a rich life as a human being and not just, you know, a rich bank account, all that stuff, is not only getting lost, it's getting actively uh, extinguished from our educational system. So in the essay, you, you note that uh, at one of the colleges you visited, they had a, a mission state from, from the 20s that was in a complete sentence that talked about right, right. the idea of creating uh, or helping to create a self in the individual, but then now we've reduced it down to like key words that don't right. even mean what we think. The, could you explain what created creativity, service, and leadership is at this point in time? Yeah, right. So what you're talking about is, in the way, I mean, the way I started the answer, because I, I went back and taught, I don't, I'm not a professor anymore, but I went back uh, and taught for a semester in the spring at a uh, selective liberal arts college in California, and I was I was struck immediately because they had these banners hanging over camp, all over campus. These, they're they always hang in pairs, and the first one is a sentence from the original mission statement when the college was founded in the twenties. Uh, I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but it talks about um, uh, helping students to to um, to think uh, independently and therefore to live courageously and hopefully, which I think is a perfect expression of what we're talking about, being able to live confidently, courageously, and hopefully. I think that's the, that's the, the terms. Um, so it's a complete idea about the connection between thinking and living and the responsibility of a college to help you do both. And the other banner, which is just drawn from the current version of the mission statement, is, a, is, is, is four buzzwords. Uh, leadership, service, creativity, and I think the fourth one is integrity. But those first three, leadership, service, and creativity, um, are the buzzwords that you hear everywhere on campus all, all over the place. I mean, that's what colleges increasingly are talking about themselves in terms of leadership, service, creativity. And they all sound like good things, but if you look at them, first of all, they kind of float free of any context. Like, what does that mean? What do you mean by these things? What is the purpose of these things? But if also, if you look at them carefully, you realize that they are all encased in neoliberal assumptions. Um, like creativity doesn't mean, it doesn't really mean becoming an artist. It means what Silicon Valley means by creativity now. Create, you know, becoming a creative where you are applying your creative abilities 
for the sake of designing some kind of product or packaging or advertising campaign or app um, for whatever corporation you work for or for yourself so that you could then become, you know, an entrepreneur marketing this creativity. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're saying that we, we're existing in a society where all values are monetary and so that right. all right. the different things that we're trying to put into young people definitely increases market value. Uh, you quote David Foster Wallace either in the book or the essay in regards to you're only as good as your last quarter, your last, your last sales, sales quarter. quarter yeah. yeah. Right, right. Right. I mean, again, I don't want to exaggerate. There are certainly um, vestiges of other tendencies. And, and, you know, the more I meet professors at colleges and teachers at high schools and principals at high schools, you know, there are a lot of people who are trying to do things differently, but the overwhelming pressure is to to produce return on investment. I mean, that's the that's the phrase you always hear. What is the return on investment of a college education going to be? And so my question to that is, well, what is the return that we're talking about? Is it only a monetary term? Um, and it's really important to stress that the things that I'm talking about are not some kind of wildly utopian idea that education can be about something other than preparing people for the first job. This was the idea, this wildly utopian idea that I'm promulgating is the way we used to think about education until about 40 years ago when we started to think about everything, everything in terms of how much money it can produce. Hmm. Yeah, and so the the really striking thing in the essay that reminded me of the Matrix was this idea that in in modernity the the state was constant flux, and so the the mission of youth was to imagine a way through this, a new way because everything was always changing. They had to figure the new way out, but now in in postmodernity, you know, we're functioning under neoliberalism, and there's nothing to change because we're in a steady state free market capitalism that is just going to replicate itself forever. And then, right. Right. It, it just, right. I mean, this is, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. But so like that was the challenge. So like, as I was saying, I was seeing a lot of different problems kind of coming together in a, in a similar location and how how can if you need to imagine a new world but you're unable to imagine a new world how do you arrive at a new world well listen i think that that's been the dilemma uh um among progressives especially uh for for a long time this uh well you know again 40 50 years uh i mean people write about this um it seems it's become impossible for us to imagine an alternative. Uh, and this is, this is the most powerful form of oppression is when it, you're incapable of imagining an alternative, not when the avenues to realizing it are blocked because, you know, you're going to get thrown in jail. Um, and, and let me just say, you know, because it may be counterintuitive to some people, uh, neoliberalism has gotten very good at speaking the language of innovation, right? Innovation is, it wasn't on that banner, but it's, in some sense, it's implicit in creativity. It's this idea that the market is constantly innovating. And, and this, so there's this sense that things are changing, that new things are happening. And we have new smartphones, and we have new kinds of movies, and isn't that really cool? But as you just summarized, 
what's, what we need to keep our eye on is that the fundamental structure within which these innovations are happening, that isn't changing. This is all innovation within, um, you know, a neoliberal capitalist system. So how do we, how do we find our way out of it? Um, I don't have an easy answer for that. I do think that more thought has been, more new, genuinely new thought has been put into that since 2008, and especially since 2011, than I had seen for a number of decades. And people are talking about, beginning to talk about new ways of organizing society. I mean, it would mean, it would mean organizing society away from the profit motive. And ultimately, I think, and I think, you know, you mentioned the various strains of your thoughts coming together, and one of those strains was environmental. I think we're beginning to recognize, some people have recognized this for a long time, but we're beginning to recognize on a large scale that environmentally, it's not just a profit motive that that we need to um, think our way beyond, but it's it's the whole concept of growth on which capitalism is based and that we kind of take for granted that we're going to continue to grow. And that second reading at the beginning, I don't know where that was from. The first one was me, and the third one was Jesus. I don't know who the second one was from. That's Agent Smith from The Matrix. Okay. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly what you're talking about, this, uh, the fact that human beings have, have always just, um, you know, our our thriving has been predicated on continuous expansion, and if we may wait to one reason, we move on to the next. And we're running out. We're running out of places to to do that to. Uh, even if we manage to avert uh, the disasters of climate change, we, we're still depleting resources, uh, including land and water. So how are we going to get past that? Um, I, I, I don't know, but I do know that it's not a matter of one person thinking it up and telling everybody else. It's a matter of mobilizing our our intellectual and creative resources on on a planetary scale, and that involves the way we teach people how to think. If I could, uh, which means education. If I could just give you one quick example, um, there was a news story on a public radio show about this, and it was about how people in China are not. Uh, really taking climate change seriously. It's really just not even on their radar screen. And the last, and they interviewed a bunch of different people. I think they were all in Shanghai. And the last one was a student, and he was not only a student, he was an art student. And he said, I swear to God, he said, me and my friends, we don't think about this at all because it has nothing to do with our major. It has nothing to do with what we're studying. So these are young people, and probably very smart, creative young people in China who are being uh, educated in a way that is going to uh, offer us no help in thinking about an alternative. It's only educating them to occupy some, econo- some, some niche in the existing system. Okay, well then let's talk about the liberal arts, and we'll talk about the idea of cultivating a soul and developing a self. I mean, those feel like pretty touchy-feely things <laughs> that our system as it is is going to react very strongly to. Right. Well, you know, um, you're, you're using language that I use in the book. 
and it is language that's been attacked. Um, I'm not actually sure what's wrong with being touchy-feely. I mean, unless what we what we want is to be out of touch and to be unfeeling, huh. which I guess is what our education is producing. Yeah, and it's true. You know, I mean, uh, it's. I won't say that it's easy to laugh at the arts and humanities and talking about itself and being touchy-feely. It's easy to laugh in this culture. In other cultures, the notion that those things are a waste of time would be incomprehensible. And one of the characteristics, I think, of our society and of neoliberal thinking in general is um, that any alternative just seems ridiculous. It just seems to be a matter of scorn that you could ever think of anything in a different way. But again, this contempt for the self in education is not the way things have always been. It's just the way things are very, very recently. And even in our own system, we used to talk about educating. The phrase would have been 100 years ago, it would have been the whole man, because elite institutions were still single-sex schools. But they understood their mission, partly to help, you know, definitely to help train students to be productive and have careers. And I'm not saying that that's a problem if it's part of it. But the larger uh, goal was to was to was to cultivate the whole man. And we can go back and there, you know, sort of the German idea of Bildung and 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 the Christian idea of of developing a soul. It's actually not an accident that. Um, I mean, these are secular. The things that I'm talking about are ultimately secularized versions of religious ideas. Mm-hmm. Universities in the West started in monasteries. Universities in the United States started as church-affiliated institutions, and they lost. Most of them lost their religious affiliation, but the mission didn't really change. It just the terms of the mission changed. So it would have been again, say, 200 years ago when they were still church-affiliated, they would have talked about building character. The purpose, the highest purpose of an education is to build character. Uh, that's not different from what I'm talking about when I say build a soul or build a self. Um, what's new is this idea that education has no business doing that because it's touchy-feely and it's a waste of money and taxpayers shouldn't be paying for it. That's the problem. I mean, basically, all I'm talking about is that process by which you you read things and have discussions that help you to think about yourself and the world and anything that's bigger than the specific field that you're being trained in. And we actually have a really, we have a unique system in this country. I don't think people realize this enough. We're the only country where when you go to college, you have a major. Which, which means that you don't just study one thing. It's not that, other, it's not that in other countries you, you study lots of different things and don't have a major. In other countries, your major is essentially your whole thing, right? You go to college to study chemistry. That's all you study, right? Even if you study art history, that's all you study. We have the only system in the world, and this is, this is central to our liberal arts education, where you study a bunch of different things, partly so that you can learn to think in different ways, but mainly because the system is designed to have two purposes, to help prepare you for a specific profession or specialty and 
to help cultivate your whole self as a complete person and as a citizen, right? This is also about political participation. Can you imagine a time or can we go down that road far enough where the idea of a liberal arts education is completely eradicated? Oh, I can easily imagine that time. Um, I don't, I'm not going to say that I think we're close to it because again, I don't like apocalyptic thinking or all or nothing black and white kind of thinking, but Japan, which is, you know, one of the most advanced industrial civilizations, societies, and one of the great ancient civilizations, I swear to you, this is not a joke. The uh, government of Japan, the conservative prime minister of Japan, uh, recently announced a new plan for the nation's universities that calls for the elimination of most of, of what you would call the liberal arts. They want to eliminate uh, humanities departments and most social science departments, and they want to focus just on STEM fields and economics and things like that. This is not a joke. I don't know that it's going to completely happen because the universities are resisting. Uh, then the more powerful ones are able to resist. Um, but that was a country that essentially, in, this, in 2015, not in some weird science fiction future, uh, announced a program to eliminate the liberal arts from their universities. And there's no question that there are certain, that there are Republican state governors like Scott Walker uh, or Rick Scott in Florida who would do that if they could from their public universities. As I read your book, I noticed that you like to quote from literature and particularly uh, oftentimes Victorians. What is it about the Victorian era that is is so quotable when talking about creating a self? Oh, you know what? To to be honest, to be perfectly honest, it's just because that was my that was my own field when I was an English professor and those are the authors that I know the best. And I don't actually think there's anything special about it. I, I, again, especially because this project of creating itself, I mean, this is the human project. I mean, the Greeks were talking about it. Uh, the Middle Ages did it in their own way. If I had studied the Renaissance, I would have been quoting Montaigne and Shakespeare and, you know, all, you know any number of other people. And, and I'm not, I don't know much about non-Western literature and culture, but... Obviously, I mean, you know, you talk about Buddhist self-cultivation. Um, you know, you talk about the, the Persian poetic tradition. Um, this is everywhere. This is part of being human. That's what's so crazy about this. The fact that in this day and age, we have to argue. We have to argue for fundamental parts of, as you said earlier, what it means to be human. That we're never in question, or at least we're very rarely in question before in human civilization. And this idea that the whole purpose of civilization is just to accumulate stuff, I mean, this is what's new and perverse. And it's so perverse that people who try to argue otherwise sound perverse. I think the one thing I would say about the Victorians in the 19th century is that, um, I mean, the 19th century is kind of the great century of the novel. You know, in the 20th century, the novel is already beginning to be displaced by uh, you know, film first, first of all, and then other arts. But the 19th century was the great age of the novel when it came into its own and it kind of in, had replaced poetry as the most important literary form. And the and what the novel then, and to a great extent still, is typically about, 
is the coming-of-age story, right? It's novels classically focus on a young person coming into society, uh, coming to terms with what society wants from him or her, and trying, sometimes often unsuccessfully or partial, with partial success, which is inevitable in life, to create a life on their own terms, to, to create a life based on values that they chose. And um, that's kind of what I'm arguing for, is to try to live that kind of life, where instead of just accepting what's been handed to you, you step back, which is what college is for, a kind of interval between childhood and adulthood, to step back and become conscious of the values that have been instilled in you, and to ask yourself whether they're the ones that you want, or whether there's a different way that you want to live. And um, I think that, again, that's a natural impulse of young people, and it has to actively be suppressed. Unfortunately, I think our educational system does a pretty good job of suppressing it. Uh, and I, and that's one of the reasons that I think, I mean, there's a lot of statistical evidence. This is not just me trading an anecdote. There's a lot of statistical evidence that said that college students and young people in general right now are experiencing levels of unhappiness that we've never seen before. It's not typical, you know, teenage angst. It's something much more profound than that. Because they're not being given... I mean, to me, teenage angst is all about the process that I just talked about. Right. It's, all this, it's all about feeling like you don't fit in. But when you're not even allowed to ask that question, then you get a kind of emptiness, which is what young people are reporting. But if, if it's the complete commodification, too, at the same time, so... If you're determining who and what you are, that's like a that's a personal journey. But if you're trying to fit into categories, I guess you know, like a commodity, so you understand what brands you should get, it, it seems to really lose something. Well, I mean, I think you make a great point, which is that what people are offered in terms of constructing a self is is very much sort of brand. Or, you know, self-curation. I like these songs, you know, I like to wear this stuff. I think that that can play a part, but I think it's become, you know, because, I mean, music is a powerful form of self-expression. I mean, not just making music, but listening to it. It's an important way to get in touch with yourself. But when it becomes relentlessly commodified, and I think social media helps to do that because you kind of build your own brand. Even if you're not selling something, you're sort of presenting a persona that doesn't lend itself to real depth. It's just about a bunch of lists and likes. Yeah. Huh. Um, well, so let's get back to to the the movie though. So, it seems like the our culture does a pretty good job of like making the noble savage. So you want to try and understand the other, and you have someone from the the economic majority go in, and then they lead those people to some kind of victory against the majority. You know, so I'm thinking like Avatar. Yes, the white, the white, the white messiah. I think people call that. I wonder. I mean, so like, this is those are interesting stories. But then I'm thinking about class, which is something that we don't ever really take on very often. Mm-hmm. You know, so the idea of how classed our society really is. Yeah. And then I wonder. So even kind of you, where you were part of that elite education, and now you're you're taking it apart and saying, hey, this is contributing to the world that we live in. Right. Do you think we will ever get to a place where the middle class can understand how destructive the system we're in is 
and that we can maybe create a new system? Yeah, well, let me let me just say, first of all, that um, I talk about class a lot in my book, especially the last part, which is kind of the big social overview. I talk a lot about how classed, as you say, uh, the system has become and how, how our educational system really reinforces class divisions now. Um, Look, I think the middle class is very well aware. This is sort of the this is the this is the ancient uh, dilemma of the American left, right? The middle class is perfectly aware of its own economic situation and the precariousness of its own situation, and no one has to tell them that. And this is this is partly what people are responding to with Bernie Sanders, and it's partly what they're responding to with Donald Trump. And the middle class has been, you know, slowly being bled to death for forty years, and they know that, but. The dilemma for the American left, and it's, it was the same one in the 30s and even in the 1890s, is how do you take people's individual uh, economic stress and um, turn that into a political movement by, and it's going to sound, I mean, I think it sounds condescending, I think it can be condescending, by educating them about what the structural causes of their distress is. I mean, I, listen, I think that that's what Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are both trying to do, except Donald Trump's answer is the problem is immigrants. But that's a structural analysis. It may be desperately wrong, but it is a structural analysis. Your problem is bigger than you. It's the immigrants. And Bernie Sanders, well, obviously, I agree with the saying, your problem is bigger than you. It's the way the whole system is run. Um, I think... You know, I mean, I think it's hard to do that, to, to educate people and then get them motivated to take action. It has happened in the past. I mean, we, we built a very strong labor movement in this country. At one time, you know, about one out of three American workers were in unions. Uh, can it happen again? Um, you know, I'm not pessimistic because I don't know what the future is going to bring, and I don't think anybody else does. I'm not optimistic either for the same reason. But um, I think things, I mean, and also because I'm not naturally, as you can probably tell, I'm not a naturally hopeful person. But I do think political developments, political movements can happen, can come out of nowhere. Oh, pressures that are building invisibly because they're not being covered by the media can suddenly erupt. I think that happened in 2011 with Occupy. Um, and I think that, that movement is ongoing. I mean, Occupy itself maybe isn't, but the movement for the minimum wage uh, and for um, for re- for free college tuition, for that matter, uh, which is also gaining momentum, you know, nobody saw those coming. So let's not let's not think that uh, the sky is falling. Hmm. The other interesting thing in your book is how you spell out how our political system at this point also really reinforces the the elite ruling class. Our, our our political system or our educational system? Both. The, how the education yeah. system reinforces the political system to create right. the ruling elite and how, right. in it's especially in the last, oh, however number of years you mentioned, it, um, where the Ivy League is the, you know, contributing the candidates, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah, the shift was around 1992, I think. Right, if you look at the major party presidential candidates from World War II until the uh, early 90s, most of them went to state universities. 
Very few of them went to elite universities. Some of them didn't go to college at all. And then kind of there was this generational shift, and all of a sudden they all have, almost all of them, Clinton and Obama and Romney uh, and Kerry. Um, you know, Ted Cruz went to Princeton. Hillary Clinton went to Wellesley. Um, we, we did, again, I mean, we talk about reasons for hope. They're really, I mean, the middle of the 20th century was a time when inequality was declining and the educational system was deliberately reconfigured to enable social mobility. And we built the world's first mass middle class, first one. And then in the age of neoliberalism, that was deliberately reversed. And what we have now is an educational system that's reinforcing rather than mitigating the class system. Basically, because we're defunding public education, both K through 12 and public universities have been wildly defunded. So you need to, you know, basically every family is in it for itself. Everyone's on their own. So wealthy families, upper middle class and upper class families can pour enormous educational resources into their kids. And they go to one of a few private colleges and universities that are at the top of the heap and they're ushered into the elite. And people further down just don't have those resources. So, you know, if you grow up poor, you're unlikely to graduate from college at all. If you grow up middle class, you're going to take on a lot of debt to go to your state university and your life chances will be somewhere in the middle. But that's what a class system is. It's when your life chances are determined by your parents' position in life rather than the so-called American dream, which was once kind of a real thing where you really could work your way up. If you, if you tried, we can do that again, but it's going to take a, you know, it's going to take a big political lift. That was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah. I hope that was valuable. It was. You've been listening to William DeResowitz on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Information about his work can be found at billderesowitz.com, and we'll link to this. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of our membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and we're not teaching to the test. We are living to it.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.